you guys. If you've got your Bibles, <clears throat> go to Joshua chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. I'm, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm glad you're visiting with us. If you're uh, new to Bethel, uh, this is a great morning for you to be here. We've been looking at this, uh, this Old Testament book of Joshua that comes right after the first big five. So it's, it's kind of the you're a basketball fan, it's kind of the sixth man of the Old Testament. And it's this great transition book. And it really brings to fruition everything that the Old Testament has been talking about up to this point. And that is that God has a land, a promised land for his people. And he's been talking about it since he called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And this morning we... Uh, we're going to be, it's our first moments across the Jordan River. It's our first more moments where God's people as a whole will find themselves standing with the promised land under their feet. And so, uh, that's what I want us to look at this morning. What, to start it off, I'll tell you one of the things I love the most about the holidays is when all of our family gets to get together. I've got, I'm the oldest of five um, children, um, and, and in, it, oldest means best, always does. And, um, we, and we're all married, and we've all got kids, and there's about 16, 18 grandchildren that are all there, you know, around at my mom's house when we can all be together. And invariably, what happens is, we, we tell stories. I don't know what you do at your house, but at ours, we uh, end up after, you know, everybody's caught up and the grandkids are, every, we get into stories. And sometimes we tell some of the same stories. Sometimes new stories will be remembered and they always um, have some flair of the dramatic. One of the stories that typically gets told, particularly when my sister Sarah, she's the middle child, uh, when she's there, and it was about when she was a senior in high school, she was what was called a squad captain. And they were in charge at the football games of, oh, the, the cheer group or whatever uh, that was. But, they, but most specifically, they made the run-through signs for the football team. So if you ever played football, Friday Night Lights, you run out onto the field, you would run through this, this gigantic sign, and the sign would always say something, you know, uh, you know, down with the other team, or, or whatever it would say. So anyways, <laughs> should have thought about that. I could have come up with something clever. Um, so, they would, so they would run through the signs. Well, well, so she was a squad captain. It was her, her uh, game that she was in charge of, which meant she had a lot of anxiety as she tells a story that nobody really knew about. And that was Shotwell Stadium in Abilene, Texas. The, the stadium, the field, was sort of below the ground. And so the, the, the seats were at ground level, and the stadium itself, the, the, uh, the field itself, was down below. And so to get onto the field, you had to drive down a ramp to get onto the field. And so the squad captain would have to drive their car down onto the field. And, and she didn't have a car at the time. She was borrowing my mom's minivan. And it was this minivan that had been an old flower shop delivery van. All right. So its best days were way behind it by the time we, we got this van. 
It's a blue Astro minivan that we called Free Willie. And uh, it was temperamental. That thing, um, you never knew what was going to happen. And she had this lot of anxiety. She just didn't know. And if I get it down there, am I going to be able to get it back up? Sure enough, she drives it down there, gets the thing parked at about the 20-yard line there on the sidelines, and uh, the, it goes dead, completely dead. And turns out they, they won't play a football game with a minivan sitting on the field. <laughs> so they had to go in and get some of the football players to help turn this car around and push it up the ramp to get it out of the way. And the whole time, you know, they're griping. Who in the world's car is, you know, of course they're griping. Um, I mean, it's not any of the, the receivers or quarterbacks or anything. These are the linemen. And, um, you know, and she's like, I don't know. I just don't know who's, whose car that is. Um, stories like that we, we'll tell over and over again. My mom will always chime in about how thankful she was for that car. And the Lord provided it at the right time. And we always kind of look and think, well, I guess so. Um, last week of Free Willie's life, it only went in reverse, so there was that. But stories. My kids love to hear them. I know their cousins love to hear them. And that's what this chapter is about this morning. It's about remembering stories. I said last week, chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Joshua, they go together because the, the writer's kind of taken some time and he slowed down the story. And, and at the beginning of chapter 3, they're camped on the east side of the Jordan. By the end of chapter 3, they'll have crossed over the Jordan and they'll be now on the west side of the Jordan. And in the meantime, what God's done is he has parted the, the Jordan River, and we looked at it was at the harvest time, which meant it was overflowing its banks, and it was hundreds and hundreds of yards, maybe even as far as a mile long what the river would have been coming down at the point they were. And God steps in through the Ark of the Covenant and, and holds the water back. And he held it back not just right where they were. He held it back 16 miles up river and dried the ground and the priests stand in the middle of the river with the ark of the covenant of the Lord. We said the, the, you know, the earthly throne of God, if you will, this physical manifestation of God's power. And they crossed far enough away from the ark so that as they're going across on dry land, there wasn't anyone that wouldn't look and no one would miss the scene of the priest just standing there with the ark. And the water piled up miles and miles behind it. The scene's incredible. Uh, you know, the ark's at the center, the throne of God, the power of God. It's an incredible display of power, and yet what you see is that none of God's power in any way is depleted. There's no strain of exertion. There's no struggle. This isn't God struggling, you know, for one more rep, wishing the people would hurry across because he can't hold it much longer. It's not even like the, the mother who, you know, 
flips the car off of her child because of the surge of adrenaline. It's not like that either. It's, a, it's an awesome and endless power. One writer said it was the visibility of raw power in the ease of omnipotence. It's truly a God that can do anything. That's the picture. And surely this is a day that will never be forgotten. Surely. The problem is, we've seen up to this point in the Bible, God's people are forgetful. They so easily forget the power of what God has done. In fact, the very next book, Judges, it will open up. Joshua will be dead. It'll say everybody has forgotten. And they'll all do what is right in their own eyes. You know, forgetfulness is it's one of the biggest threats to the faith of any people. And so chapter 4 opens up, and they're now on the, the east side. And, and it's kind of looking now at this event, not from the west side and preparing to cross. It's now on the east side, and they're looking back at the event, the, the, the crossing that just happened. And so listen to these first verses as the Lord is going to instruct Joshua in Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the feast, priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you will lodge tonight. And then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your, your God into the midst of the Jordan, and Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. It's 12. That this may be a sign among you. And then he goes on. When your children, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel, a memorial forever. This is 12 men representing the 12 tribes. And to get the 12 stones out of the river, and then they're going to take them to the campsite that, that, that they're going to camp at that night. And the image is fairly simple. It's one stone per tribe that would represent the deliverance of God through the Jordan River, so into the river, and then crossing the river, and then up and out of the river onto the other side. And then they would, they would take the stones and set them up at the camp. You find out in verse 8, and later we find out that the camp that they're going to be at is called Gilgal. Now look at verse 8 again. It says this, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they arrived, uh, and they carried them over with them to the place 
where they lodged and laid them down there. And then verse 9, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. And so you find out all of a sudden here in verse 9, this is new information for us, there's not just one set of stones, the set of stones that's going to be set up at the camp at Gilgal. There's this other set of stones that Joshua seems to erect or, or construct right there in the middle of the Jordan where the priests that were holding the ark stood. And we're not given any details about why he sets them up or how he sets them up. We're just left with a mental picture, if you will, of the stones piled up there in the river at the place where the ark stood. You know, I've thought about it this week, and I've read a lot of people trying to figure out what's exactly going on there with verse 9, and there's as many opinions as there are people who are writing about it. And so, as I've thought about it, I think, well, it might be an image, just an image, just a picture. Maybe for all who would be tempted to flee back across the Jordan when things got hard. And it's a reminder that's, that's there, the writer says, to this day, which means at the time of, that this was written. And it's this reminder that says, don't quit. I, I know it seems hard, but, but your life is on this side of the river. It's not on that side of the river. This is where the Lord has led you. And the stones, they remind you to trust him. Well, so it picks up in verse 10, and the story continues. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished, that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people passed over in haste. So sometimes you're reminded when you're reading God's word, you get puzzled by the chronology, and you think, well, I thought they were already across, and now they're... And you realize, like this chapter, it's not so much a chronological account of the event as it is a theological reflection of the event. Listen to how God's power's on display. Verse 11, And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in sight of all of Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they'd stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Joshua's leadership here is going to be highlighted by God. And then in verse 15, And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, 
come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed its, all its banks as before. So the raging river returned, overflowing. This display of God's power. Well, the story comes to an end here, and you will pick up next week about some things that happened there while they're camped at Gilgal. But look at verse 19. It says, The, the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, well, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell your children. Uh, No, Israel has... Uh, passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So Gilgal is a is a word. It's it's a place. It's named Gilgal, this camp. But the word actually is a word that brings to mind the picture of a wheel. It means to roll. To to roll something, to, to roll one thing onto something else. The psalmists will use the word poetically. And it gets translated in the psalms with words like trust or commit. Trust the Lord with all your heart. It's a Gilgal is the word. And the, the idea is that you, you roll all your cares onto the Lord. You, you roll all your future onto the Lord. You, you roll all of your life onto the Lord. 40 years of wandering was being rolled away onto the Lord. The future in the promised land was being rolled onto the Lord. And that night at camp, I can't imagine this first night at camp, the first night in the promised land. I I imagine a, a celebration took place, this party took place. They're standing there, maybe, maybe dancing and singing. With the promised land beneath their feet. It's what they've waited for centuries for. And God's brought it to bear. I want to show you two things about this real quick. In verse 19, did you notice that we're given a date? It says the 10th day of the first month. 
It's a date that would have happened March or April. And Exodus 12 tells us that it was the day, the very day, that they began preparation for the Passover, where they would choose the Passover lamb, they were going to sacrifice the lamb, and then they take the blood and they put it on the doorstep or, you know, the, the doorpost of their house. And then that night, the angel of the Lord came through Egypt. And all the houses that didn't have the blood of the Passover lamb on it, the angel of the Lord would take the firstborn child. It's, um, it's what would make the way for them to leave Egypt. And this tenth day of the first month is the day they chose the lamb. They picked the sacrifice, and then they would wait four days. Four days later is the Passover, and you'll see in the, in the chapter to come that it will be celebrated that way. You, you might say it was a day that that marked back in Exodus 12, it marked the beginning of their redemption. And then this night in Gilgal, exactly 40 years later, it comes to a completion in a sense. What God began, he, he's brought to completion, or at least a, a first completion. There will be a greater completion that will come 1,500 years Later, on another Passover, when Jesus is offered up for the redemption of all mankind. It's been said his faithfulness has been written across their calendar. Forty years to the day. Well, Gilgal would become their home base for this next seven years of of war, of going in and, and claiming this land and possessing this land that God's given them. They'd gather there. They would regroup after the battles. They, they'd come and celebrate their victories. They, they would come after their defeats to, to bring God's people there, to, to remember the, the stones that are piled up there. Not to come and to worship this thing that they've built in the stones. Of course not. It's purposefully underwhelming. So that no one would come and go, man, what an incredible pile of stones. That wasn't the idea. It was never about celebrating what the people had done. It was always about remembering what God had done to reflect upon his great work of power in their lives, to reflect upon his grace and his, and his goodness to them so that they remember. And then the text gives us this very specific purpose, how the stones were to work in the life of the people, these memorial stones. Look back with me. We'll look at verses 6 and 7, and then we'll look at the very end, verse 24, 23 and 24. 6 and 7, read it this way. That this may be a sign among you, these stones. And when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? 
Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. It's a memorial forever. And you're meant to talk about it with your, your children. It's the story that would be told. It's the remembering of what God had done. We had our oldest daughter uh, in town to visit a few weeks ago, and uh, she brought a friend with her. This guy, anyways. We ended up that weekend having dinner with a couple of elders and their wives, and uh, it wasn't an interrogation uh, by any means. It really was just a conversation, and it was fun to, to see um, you know, the, the conversation turn to, you know, how's, how's the Lord leading in their life and, and, and this sort of thing. And the most unexpected and wonderful surprise happened. Well, one of the elders uh, at the dinner that night started talking about the years of, their, of his marriage, of their marriage there, how it began. And he started talking about his testimony. And how he came to know the Lord. And it was pretty cool. There it is. There's three generations, if you will, and we're sitting at this table, and they're hearing about a 50-year marriage, and it, which I'm, I don't say that to imply anything about my daughter and her friend. Make that clear. I'm not unimplying it. I'm just not implying it. I'm going to be in so much trouble. But it's great to have them sit and to listen to the, to the story of God's faithfulness in their life. And this remembrance here in, in Joshua, it's specifically connected with the children. Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says about this. He says that the 12 stones are meant to provide occasions for teaching, for impressing upon the next generation Yahweh's mighty act at the Jordan. We can almost see it now, 15 years post-Jordan time, and Israelite father and his six-year-old son are strolling through the Gilgal National Park. The lad spots an imposing pile of stones. He counts 12 and he screams, Hey, Daddy! What are those stones for? The son's curiosity now becomes the occasion for communicating to him the news of Israel's astounding God and how he unleashed his power for his people. And there's an implication here. If Yahweh so insists that Israel remember this day, it implies that this event was unique and that Yahweh does not usually work with such visibly raw power. If Yahweh did something of this magnitude every fifth Wednesday or so, why should Israel need to remember Jordan Day? Apparently, this sort of miracle will be infrequent. Yahweh's standard method of retaining his people's fidelity is not by frequent and dazzling displays of power, but by faithful witness and teaching of those particular acts in which he had already demonstrated 
his care for his people. The pattern carries over for the church, he says. We continue to remember the utterly unique act of our Redeemer in the Lord's Supper. Even our children whisper to us as we take the elements. Well, what does that mean? What is that? Well, what are you doing? And even there, we can whisper our brief witness back to them. Why this remembrance? Lest we begin to regard the cross as a piece of furniture rather than the throne of the shepherd who soaked up the wrath of God for the sins of his flock. That we would remember. We'd remember to our children. We'd remember to each other. Well, not only is it a a remembrance forever, a memorial forever, like it says there in verse 7. And in verse 24, look at it again. He says, so that, set these up, tell about the waters of Jordan, connect it with the Red Sea. So that, verse 24, all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Remembering. Is how the world will know, or one of the ways the world will know, as we tell the story of how God redeems his people. And this happens in the church. This is, this is the intended generational telling of the gospel as the gospel continues to be passed down from one generation to the next. And that is the function of the church. That's what we do in the church. There's an old practice in Dutch families. It began apparently somewhere around the 1600s. It's as early as they've got some copies of it. And the patriarch of the family, in his last years, would embark on writing a biography. And it wasn't one to be published. It wasn't one for general reading. It was just a telling of the story of his life and the things he'd seen God's do, God do. And it was to be read by his children and his grandchildren. What a, what a great practice for that. A witness to the earth. And then look, finally it says, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So see, this was the, the proper posture of the people of God. Fear. It, it means awe or reverence or worship. It's from the Hebrew word yareh. The fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. You know, you go back to the beginning of their journey. Go back 40 years to Exodus 19. God brings them to the base of Mount Sinai, and and he has them, you know, consecrate themselves over a three-day period, very much like the things we read a couple of weeks ago here. Prepares them to... To come and, and to meet him at the, at the mountain. For them to come and to, 
and to be in the presence of God. And yet, in Exodus 19, it says that when, when God appeared and there was the thunder and the lightning and the power of God on display, it says they were afraid. They trembled. It's not yare, it's a word harad. It's the kind of fear you would have if you were prey and you were being hunted. It's the kind of fear a, a deer would have being chased by the lion. Because I don't want you to be afraid of me like that. You're not to tremble in, in that kind of fear before me. In fact, they'll tell Moses, we don't want to see him again. You go talk to him instead of us. We, we don't ever want to have to do that again. You find out it would be a persistent problem for them because they would forget what God had done. That's how that fear grows. Is when you forget what God's done. When you remember what God's done, his power and his grace and his goodness, Yahweh, Leads to worship and to awe and reverence. Well, I'll tell you, I don't do this very often, but I'll tell you a couple of stones of remembrance in my own life. I remember when Leslie and I, um, we, we had already started a family. I was on Young Life staff, and we were living in Oklahoma, and had a little child, you know, a little baby, a little two-year-old. And we were wrestling with the decision about going to seminary. And it, it seemed impossible to, to us, honestly. It was, it was a Jordan River that we didn't know how to cross. And we were on a, uh, that summer, we were on a Young Life assignment. We were spending a month at Trail West Lodge, which is the family camp. And there was a guy there with his family. They, they were guests. And, and he had just graduated from Dallas Seminary. And he had three kids. And Leslie was like, well, go talk to him. And, you know, ask him, how did he do that? And so I did. I couldn't wait. So go to him and say, oh, gosh, you know, if you don't mind, can I talk to you for a minute? And so I told him the whole thing and all the ways it was impossible for us. And, how, you know, how do you go? And I was really expecting him. I was ready. I probably had my journal and a pen there. I was going to write down whatever he said. He said, you know, if you're supposed to be there, God will see that you get there. And I've never been more disappointed in my whole life. <laughs> Truth is, I look back on that conversation so many times, what a stone that was for me. We lived through that very statement. If we were supposed to be there, God would see that we'd be there, and he did. We had these convictions, you know, little things about not going into debt. I had to finish in four years. It's a four-year degree. And we'd have dinner together as a family at night. Well, we went. We went with the first year covered. Our church in Oklahoma helped us and some other people helped us. And so we had year one taken care of when we got there. And I got a job and I was working as a marriage and family therapist and was doing that in the day and going to school at night. And it was too much, and, I, and we weren't 
seeing each other. So I left that job and I didn't have any idea in the world how the next three years were going to be taken care of. And all of a sudden, deal shows up in my box at school. I was invited to apply for a scholarship, applied for the scholarship, got the scholarship, took care of the rest of school. Couldn't believe it. We were coming to Bethel, wrestling with this decision. We had a specific need. And a guy in our church, David Johnson, asked me for a meeting and, you know, we're going to meet at the McDonald's, which I thought, oh, great. It's going to leave the church. And uh, that's what we always think when you call us and say, we want to meet with you and don't tell us why. Just kidding. Not really. So we sat there, and he said, you know, and, and Leslie and I, we'd, we've been wrestling with this decision. We had this very specific need, and we hadn't told anybody about it. We were praying about it, and it was kind of all at the same time. And sat down, and right there across, he said, we need, Gail and I feel like we need to do this for you, want to do this for you. And Leslie, he didn't know what the need was. We didn't know anything about it. And that 20 minutes took care of that need specifically. And then he says, and I was supposed to call Bethel that afternoon. And I didn't know what I was going to say. And then he says, and if you tell me that you, you're leaving and moving to Houston, Texas tomorrow, it's no, this, it, it, that's okay. There's it's no, no strings on this deal. And I said, well, it's close. It's actually Tyler. It's a stone. I look back. I think, gosh. Those are dramatic and concrete. And they're not all that way by any means. Of course they're not all that way. I don't have lots of, very many of those. Some of them are a lot more subtle. I was just in a conversation with my son last week. And he's making his way in a new job in a different part of the country. He's doing well and trying to make a decision. And so we talked through it and, you know, asked him how, you know, he thought the Lord was working in this. We prayed together for a minute. And the next day he gets his phone call out of the blue from a man from another state, does the same kind of thing he does, but he's further down the road from him. Guy said, I came across your name and was wondering where you landed. And Jay was able to get some counsel right there on the spot and was just perfect for him and, and more than that it was encouragement he called me right away he's like dad can you believe it and I got to say yeah I can I can believe it son don't forget it all of us have stones of remembrance some are less concrete some are more some are less dramatic some are more dramatic God's given us these stones of remembrance to cause us to look back and to think about what he's done in our life and to cause us, like Joshua, to, to rise up, you know, right before those stones and to go forth into battle for him. And we need to do this because we're just like the Israelites of old. We have this tendency to forget the good times and only remember the bad. 
You know, remember all the slights and the injuries and the disappointments and the misfortunes. You know, and they did stick right there in our minds and our memories. But the kindness and goodness and satisfaction and miracles are easily forgotten. So we've got to gather the stones up. Stones of remembrance because of what they do to us. They, they build confidence. They, they build power in our lives. They, they fuel our, our faith. And it's what happens when we have these Gilgals in our, in our lives. It is that we're, we're strengthened by them. Our families are strengthened. Our church is strengthened. And we're to remember We're not to forget any of his goodness to us. This text this morning, this Joshua 4, it's a call for us to do this. So how do we do do it? Real real quick, here's a couple of things. One, read through the chapter again. Maybe this afternoon, sometime this week. Read through it prayerfully and with a thankful heart and ask God to bring to mind his goodness and start making a list. Just write it down. Maybe somewhere in your Bible or in a journal. You can do it around the table. Maybe as your life group meets or you're, you're with some friends or, or, or with your family and, and your children. And don't make it weird with your kids, you know. I mean, we're the worst at that, right? Okay. We're going to talk about the stones now. I promise you, you make it weird, it'll be weird. Let's talk about it casually, comfortably, in normal language. The ways in which you've seen God at work. Remember those things. At milestones, birthdays, anniversaries. In fact, it's why we call our ministry with our children here, milestones are, you know, the milestone of birth and the milestone of, of baptism and the milestone of graduation, and these are milestones in our children's lives and the lives of our family. Rehearse those. Holidays, when you have multiple generations together, and we've got Thanksgiving coming and Christmas coming and be good for us to remember. To be a remembering people. So like Joshua, you know, be able to ride back to camp, gaze on the stones, kneel down, thank God in remembrance for his great power. Let us follow God's word. Let us forget none of his blessings. In fact, even today, as you head out of here and go to lunch, share your remembrances over a meal. Find somebody to do that with. If you would, would you pray with me? Father, I I pray you'd help us to be people that remember and that we wouldn't forget. It's so easy to see all the things that weigh us down today that just that comes so easily and I confess it comes so easily to me yet Father this 
chapter this morning is a call for us to remember your goodness in our lives, in our families, in our church, in in the lives of our friends. So, Father, I pray you draw our minds to those things. You, You bolster, build up our faith with them. Father, we'd, we'd worship you well. We'd, we'd go out of here in the confidence of your grace and your love. And that, Father, that'd be a balm for this world that we go into. Let's help us to do that. And so, Father, we ask this this morning the only way we can. Remembering your son Jesus. And so we pray in his name. And by the power of your Spirit. Amen.